The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 25th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now think about the ill will that Trump has engendered. What if any other president, not, not a Democrat, even a Republican, some other Republican Iran, Rand Paul, Jeb Bush, what if he were president and he said, the federal government is seriously considering using its resources to address the issue of murder in Chicago? Wouldn't that be treated, especially by Chicagoans, as welcome? Okay, we've got a huge problem and the federal government has huge resources. But Trump pops off about Chicago gun crime in a tweet that exactly coincides in time and talking points with an O'Reilly Factor segment. And Chicago is rightly pretty worried. What is this guy talking about? An occupying force? The military in the street? Trump is such a blustery, impetuous neophyte, you simply cannot assume he has any idea what he's talking about. You can't assume that his words have meaning. Remember when George W. Bush swayed the weak-minded with the construction, I say what I mean and I mean what I say, <laughs> Yeah, I long for that. So for the last couple days, we've been hitting Trump and Sean Spicer on outrageous claims that may or may not become actual law. But I want to take a moment or two to talk about some tangible actions the president has taken. He's authorized the Dakota and the XL pipelines. In coverage of these authorizations, they've been lumped together, but they shouldn't be. XL was stopped by Obama executive order. So a Trump executive order just reverses that. That's simple. But Dakota, that was stopped by an Army Corps of Engineer recommendation. So what does his order do? Does it just ignore the core? Well, it turns out Trump has a couple of ways to thwart that recommendation. Congress, for one, can pass an appropriations order, which would override the Army Corps' recommendation. Also, Ellen Darcy, who made the announcement about the Corps turning down the easement, was an Obama appointee. So when Trump gets his appointees in the Army Corps, that reversal could happen. So yeah, it looks like that victory from the protesters did depend on a Democrat being in office. In other things Trump's actually done, he's jacked up initiation fees at Mar-a-Lago. He's doubled them. Not sure if the initiation besides the fees will include a doubling of the paddling or a longer hell night, but we will find out. And the number of Trump brand hotels are to triple, the Trump Corporation says. Now I said things Trump has done. Donald Trump, of course, had nothing to do with this. There's no way he could have known about it, and there's no way does he benefit from it, because, of course, the corporation is being run by a pair of neutral executors. Their names are Don Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. And really, the only way for Trump to ever benefit from this is to once more run the Trump Corporation, which I cannot imagine is a job that he would ever want or could manage to even land in, say, three years, 11 months time. Today on the show, I spiel about the Oscars, Oscar so beige. But first, I'll take you to the mountains of Ecuador, where an expert on societal collapses looks at Maya civilization, compares it to our own, and says, I wouldn't be so comfortable with that ground beneath our feet. <music> 
This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, if you know anything about me, I have been known to attend a tart and vicar party dressed up in uh, sexually provocative outfits. I vacuum in my underwear and sing songs. I rail against the smug marriage. But that's because I've been called the real-life Bridget Jones. Joining me now is Arthur Demarest, who's a professor at Vanderbilt and has been called the real-life Indiana Jones. He knows of the jungle. He knows of collapsed civilizations. And I want to talk to him about the Mayans and others today. Hello, Professor Demarest. How are you? Hi. Hi. And you join us from the highlands of Guatemala? Yeah, I'm in the highlands where in the jungle where I work, there's no electricity or signal or running water or anything, actually. So I'm up in the highlands where things are quite a bit better. But you can only take so much of modernity, I take it. Actually, I really like it a whole lot better in a hut in the jungle. You get used to it and it's beautiful. So I'm going to tee you up by uh, relaying an idea that Barack Obama and others, I've said something like it, which is there's never been a greater time to be alive. The life expectancy of most people is better than ever. The chance of dying in a war is better than ever. We're really on an upswing. So what would you say to that? I would say that that's a very ominous thing to say. Usually uh, the collapse of civilizations occurs People would think, oh, there's a slow decline because, you know, the one everybody thinks of is Rome. But very, very often it's more like a bubble and things are uh, at their absolute peak just before uh, they fall apart. But it probably is true that if you are a civilization that reaches certain heights, you're for the most part constantly improving. So what? how important a distinction is it to say they collapsed at their peak? I mean, America has mostly been at its peak throughout its history to take my civilization. Well, the always improving thing means constant growth and technological change and everything, meaning that you really can't stabilize. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you sort of stabilize growth, uh, economic uh, wealth or population, 
then the system doesn't work as, as you know, with us, if it's less than 3% growth, people are unhappy. If it's less than 1% growth, they're even more unhappy. So you can't stabilize and that's just not sustainable long term. When I say that, I'm not necessarily saying that's true of us, but if it isn't, then we're like the exception in the last 10,000 years of civilizations all over the world. You, sooner or later, you're going to reach some kind of limit, and you need to be able to reduce growth, stabilize, because with all improvements and all growth, problems are generated, and you can only wait so long to take care of them. So you see these civilizations like the Maya in the 8th century who are in absolute apogee. I mean, it's spectacular, you know. But there are all these problems that have been building up. And by the time they really break, um, it's too late to fix them. And that, you know, a, a perfect example of that may well be like global warming. Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking about global warming because they're not only your thoughts, but uh, some professors at Harvard talked about how America has now become more of an illiberal democracy. And now we have more warning, warning signs for falling into an autocracy. And the fear of autocracy is the current fear. But over during my lifetime, uh, now it's that we're going to be ruled by an autocrat. Uh, for years, it has been global warming. Before that, it was the population boom. There's always an anxiety that we say this could be. And, you know, among a subset of people, they will say, well, it's moral rot that will bring down our society. So the idea of decline or collapse is always at least somewhat attractive to people as a justification for their biggest anxiety at the moment. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, and societies. When you study collapse, a lot of what you study is non-collapse, yes. you know, resilience. But the idea that, w that when you have a response, you fix the situation and you achieve sustainability. Sustainability is a myth. But the problems don't go away. You kind of have to fix them. And if you keep the rate of growth as constant as it is right now in Western civilization, I mean, you never know what's going to happen, but the, the lessons of all the other collapses is you just – I wrote a couple of books on this when yeah. I was younger about Aztecs and Incas. You, you have to have some way of slowing down when you start to hit uh, walls. Well, did they? You know? Did are, are there societies – obviously, they've, they've all collapsed eventually, but are there societies who played out the string for a long time by kind of hemming in their ambitions? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Not so much the hemming in the ambitions as the maybe the ambitions being reduced again by hitting problems. Okay. And then a loss of faith in government and so on that would lead to some uh, political and economic modifications. Now, when there's a big loss of faith in government, that often leads to a collapse. Uh, but on the other hand, it is leadership is it's really it's really very difficult to get leadership to change. In a, in a big way, to really think out of the box. And um, sometimes you have to have kind of a political or economic crisis. And then you have what we would call a recession. But in any case, we're going to have to face something that, like that that either forces us to slow down or where we actually plan to slow down. But with planning to slow down is not, is not something leaders can usually pull off. Uh, there are many cases that you can see where the rulers actually decided that, yeah, we need to 
we need to slow down. We need to cut back. We've kind of reached our limits. Uh-huh. And, they, and they become very unpopular <laughs> and you, usually can't maintain their power. Yeah, I think um, in, uh, I, I know in 1980, Walter Mondale ran on such a platform. But I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, you have said that it is the very strength of a society that usually causes its collapse. Uh, it's, it's written into its DNA in a way. So how would you define the strength of American society? Is it democracy in that we willingly elected a person who could have autocratic tendencies? What do you, what do you think the strength is that's going to uh, be the trigger? If you look at democracies around the world, they fail. 90% of the time. I mean, I work and I live most of the time in Central America, so I see it. I mean, I think I was, I was through between my early work in El Salvador in the Civil War and Guatemala in the Civil War. They had seven or eight coups. Um, you could count on them every few years. Or they turn into autocracies. What is strong about our system is the balance of power. And in the very beginning, you said something about that with the autocracy. It is, you know, it's the balance of power. You see civilizations where power is divided up and they have much more flexibility and much more resilience. Uh, it's it's that because if there's a problem in one part of the system, there are checks and balances and all of that. We're sort of losing that, as you said in the beginning. And that's the great strength um, because democracy by itself really feeds short-term thinking. Um, you know, like um, you were mentioning 1980 and Mondale and so on. Well, the... It, it, um, the Reagan said, are you better off than you were four years ago? And then Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. And so now people are expecting dramatic change from a president within two, four years. Um, and, you know, that short cycle thinking really leads to crises. It, it stimulates short-term thinking stimulates uh, developments and progress that isn't thinking at all about negative consequences. So anyway, to get back to the, your question, I always wander off, but um, technology, I would say, the development of technology and a system that slowly develops a balance of power uh, in order to channel and develop that, and uh, a capitalism in its various forms, super well-developed market economy. So the technology and the political changes are, are driven along by this kind of internal competition. Those are our great strengths. And they, and they are also now our, uh, you know, our weaknesses and what, will, what could lead us to collapse, I think the same systems. Yeah. So you've studied 18 of these. These days, uh, there are a couple of trends, I guess you might call them, or what people see as trends that people point to as things that might be the source of our collapse. And two of them are moral rot, however you want to call it, and just a general sense that we've gotten soft and lazy. Now, of the collapses you've seen, have those ever been the cause? You know, it might be better if we got a little more lazy in those terms, mm-hmm. um, because then we could slow down and adjust, have less expectations for, you know, what we need to be happy in America just keeps growing up and up and up in our housing, in our cars, in our kids going to college. The society has an ethic in terms of work. And if you're not keeping up with that ethic, 
then they're seen as lax and so on and so forth. But in many societies, the ethic is quite different. There are very high expectations regarding your role as parents and so on, and that sort of trumps other things. Um, and there are expectations in terms of, well, in many societies, in terms of feasting and rituals and things that we would, we, we would consider lazy partying, but actually hold the whole system together. The Maya had a lot of that. As an archaeologist or anthropologist doing these things, you have to constantly be thinking of, in terms of what the other society thinks. If you use Western values to look at the collapse of of Angor or the Indus civilization, you you won't understand it. I've been doing this collapse studies since, I mean, that's pretty much all I do since 86. And it's not just because I'm fascinated in collapse. It's because I learned early on that if you want to understand a civilization, not, not its collapse, but the civilization itself, the best way to start is its collapse. If you look at how it falls apart, you can see how it was constructed. And um, it's, it's like medicine came out of autopsies. I mean, that was how it, it all developed, was the, you know, the cutting up of bodies, which you see that in Leonardo da Vinci's notes and others, to try to figure out how it worked using cadavers. It's kind of like that. Well, I have called Arthur Demarest the real-life Indiana Jones. Maybe the better analogy is to Quincy, because he was a coroner, and he has, uh, he has likened what he does in studying collapse to the work of a coroner looking at a body. Arthur Demarest is a professor at Vanderbilt University. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And now the spiel. Last year, when the Academy Awards didn't nominate anything of color other than the Red Planet and the Martian, a social media campaign broke out. Oscars so white. It led to a rethinking of how Hollywood confers its highest award, how the Academy itself chooses members, and how far Chris Rock should go in his monologue. Answer, eviscerate us, flagellate us. This is our penance. Now back then... I thought the discussion was certainly worth having, and the makeup of the Academy, to me, looked like the power structure of America from 50 years ago. But in the specific, I thought the main reason why no African-American-themed films or actors were nominated was a combination of a lack of opportunity, but also a bit of a paucity of obviously deserving choices. Now, in the best movie category, people were saying that straight out of Compton or Creed were obvious snubs. And the movies were both good, but they weren't the kind of solemn prestige pictures the Academy goes for. They weren't sumptuous landscapes of the merchant ivory ilk. They weren't particularly daring filmmaking like Birdman. They weren't a biopic of a beloved icon. Easy e does not count. Compton actually had a Metacritic and Rotten Tomato score worse than any of the nominated films. Now, critics did like Creed more than a couple of movies that were nominated, like Bridge of Spies or The Revenant. But it was, when you think about it, the seventh in a series. And it was a genre film. It did big box office. Just not the kind of movie that the Oscars definitely would nominate. I would have liked to see it nominated. But films like Creed, if you take away the race of the filmmaker, if you take away the race of the main star, they do sometimes get snubbed. The Academy is snooty. But also, the Academy is stupid. You heard my vituperative and timely takedown of them for the greatest show on earth and not even a nod to Singing in the Rain. So at the time, 
I thought there was no real way to prove that race played a role in the snubs. I also thought the Academy itself could use some updating. And I thought that Oscars, and I thought and still think that Oscars so wrong was a perennially accurate hashtag. Oscars so white just being the latest distillation thereof. Oh, the artists. Oh, the King's speech. What singular achievements in cinema. And then the Academy did diversify a bit. And the nominations came out yesterday. And a record six black actors were nominated. And three films with principally African-American casts were given Best Picture nominations, Moonlight Fences, and Hidden Figures. Now I thought, good, those movies are deserving. I haven't seen any of them, but I heard they're good. But how much of a role did Oscars So White play? If you know how long it takes to make a movie, these films probably predate the Oscars So White phenomenon. That is the case with Moonlight. It was greenlit at the Telluride Film Festival in 2013. Filming began in 2015. And, you know, last year's Oscars nominations weren't announced until 2016. So January 2016, that's when the Oscars So White phenomenon launched. Let's look at Fences. That was announced two weeks to the day after the Oscar nominations of 2016 came out. In that original announcement, it was noted that Denzel Washington wanted to mount a production in time for this year's Academy Awards. Now, I have no idea if Oscars So White and the Fences nominations were related, but this was a prestigious August Wilson play, and had Denzel Washington starred in the film version in any year, there's a really good chance he'd have been nominated. In fact, his nomination for Fences is his seventh acting nomination. So maybe Oscars So White had something to do with the film's nomination as Best Picture, if not Denzel Washington himself's nomination as an actor. But let's look at Hidden Figures. That really got me to rethink the impact of Oscars So White. While the film was greenlit in 2015, it's easy to see how a project like it could languish or be put on the back burner. But the film was aggressively marketed. It was widely celebrated. It was the number one film in the box office for two weeks. I don't know how many in Hollywood would expect a movie about black female mathematicians to be the one to unseat Rogue One at the box office. And Octavia Spencer was nominated for an Academy Award. She is expected to win just like she did in 2012 for The Help. I do not know if this film would have existed, succeeded, or be as celebrated were it not for the protest movement that I, at the time, considered to be a little bit of an overreaction to a confluence of bad luck plus a valid critique of an entrenched power structure. So the protesters took advantage of a situation. Perhaps they exaggerated their argument, but in the end, you know, they did improve their lot. It's not so much different from how social change in the non-awards show context happens. But like Gandhi found out with reforming the English, when you engage in that kind of protest, it's always necessary to have a power structure that is capable of shame. Well, I, for one, am happy that this Academy Award changed happen, and I'm also happy to rethink my original impressions. And that's it for today's show. Who can forget beloved GIST producers Peter Peanut, Mr. Fee-Fi-Fo, Mary Wilson, Billy Banana, Chris Berube, and of course, Aunt Yuhu. When executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai's arch-rival, Senor Kaboom, hits him with a giant cucumber and knocks him down, we all know what he and chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, would say, I hurt my foo-foo. The gist, 
We've got spunk, and you are correct to hate spunk. Peru, Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. What's the jogging scene like in the jungles of Guatemala? Jogging through the jungle is a real good way to die.